This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Two, um, come on in. Um, we're going to get started here. How many of you have ever had one of those days where things are not just working out so well for you? How many of you ever had one of those? Nobody here? Do you want to hear my, my, story, my struggle today? I can't find my PowerPoint slides. It's a small problem. I doubt that Jesus had this problem. Because, uh, of course, he didn't use PowerPoint. He just made powerful points. So what I'm going to do is hopefully uh, the same thing, and that is to kind of look at this without any notes today and just use our whiteboard. How about that? And this will really maybe help us realize, or at least me, that I don't need technology. Let's pray together. And uh, do you have your Bibles with you today? This might help you out. And if we could turn the lights on in the back, I will, uh, I will just use the whiteboard. Let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord to be with us. Father in heaven, Lord, we're so thankful today for this powerful testimony about how you turned Leela's life upside down, Dr. Lewis. Uh, You turned her life upside down, and you did it from the inside out. And you did it through that powerful testimony of her husband and many other things. And Lord, we desire to have that kind of testimony. We do ask that you will change us from the inside out in this conference. And as we consider health evangelism and how Christ turned the world upside down and how we can too, we just ask that your spirit would be with us. We come in Christ's name. Amen. You know, one of the great things about considering Christ and how he was involved in health evangelism is how he so identified with people. You know, if you want to be involved in any kind of health evangelism, you need to be able to identify with people. You need to be able to get close to them almost instantly. Uh, It doesn't matter if you end up being a professional health evangelist like a nurse or a physician or even a more powerful health evangelist like the little maid of 2 Kings chapter 5. You see, everybody is called to health evangelism. And everybody, in some certain sense, is involved in that. In fact, in Testimonies, Volume 7, we're told that every member is to be a medical missionary, to be a health evangelist. And if that's the case, what does that mean? Very simply, health evangelism, if we want a definition, number one, is finding a need and meeting that need. That's basically health evangelism. Find a need and meet that need. And, uh, and, and, and part of finding that need and meeting that need is getting people to feel comfortable that you actually know how to do that. <laughs> Are you with me? And Christ did this. How did he do this? He came to this planet. He came down from far above to earth below, and he identified with you and me. And he did it on a very powerful level. How many of you are thankful for the holiday season that helps you remember that Christ came to identify with you? Look in Hebrews. Uh, Since we're freewheeling without our PowerPoint today, we have great freedom. Go wherever my mind thinks. This is dangerous. (laughs) Hebrews. I wanted to show you something here. Hebrews chapter 1 is the key chapter for teaching God's identity who he is, or Christ's identity. He was God. That's Hebrews chapter 1, if you wanted to summarize it. Christ was God. But then chapter 2, Christ identifies with man. Look at what it says, verse 11, at the end of verse 11. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. So in other words, he identifies. He says, look, I'm in the same family with you. But then it gets even closer. Look down a little bit further here. Verse 16. 
He does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he was made like his brethren. Now, that is getting close. How many think that's getting close? He's made like the seed of Abraham. Look, you and I are part of that same genetic pool. How many of you are thankful that Christ identified with us so closely? In fact, it says right there in uh, verse 14, As children have partaken of flesh and blood, he likewise shared in the same. Now this is identifying. So the first step, you know, in medical missionary work, if you, if you will, is finding a way to identify with people. Now you're going to love my handwriting. You're going to love it. You're just going to love it because you're not going to be able to read it. Because I worked as a, in the hospital too long. So this, well, that's not going to work. You're really not going to see if I do that. So this identifying, identify. Christ identified, okay? He identified. Now, when he identified, now, uh, you know, maybe I should throw in a, you know, some practical illustrations. Maybe we should do that later. But if you want to turn someone's life upside down, you need to identify with them. And they need to allow you to do that. You know, in the hospital, for instance, <laughs> you have to sign a consent form. Say, wait a minute, all right, we'll let you do this procedure. <laughs> you know, you don't just go in and say, okay, today, Mr. Jones, we're going you know, to do a surgery on you. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you have to consent signs, something in the form? No, no, no. We just feel like this is appropriate. No, no. You don't do that. You've got to identify. How many think that's true? Got to identify. All right. So how did Christ do that? He actually followed a prophetic model. And here's the problem. In the Adventist church, we're like a people of prophecy. How many of you are thankful for the Adventist church, people of prophecy? Problem is that our prophecy is like not connected. You mind if I take this out? Is that right? Thank you. Got to get consent. And our prophecy is not often connected with practicality. Are you with me? So in other words, we have these folks come, and I used to be one of them, go to a church, and they have like nice PowerPoint slides, and they go, okay, then there's this date, and this date, and this date. Isn't that great? Join the church. <laughs> well, it's a little slower than that, but. And, and we get really, and, and, and I think those are cool things. Well, the math works out. Look at this math. Look at that. Whoa. Boom. Baptize me. Maybe not that rapidly. But it never worked that way really in reality. See, Christ came and lived those prophecies. And what I want you to get in our first time together today is this idea. Did you know that drinking water increases your reaction time by 14%? <laughs> How many are thankful I just did that? What I want you to get today is this idea, this organic connectedness between the prophetic and the practical. Are you with me? I'm a little concerned about this whiteboard because it's kind of flimsy, but we'll draw it up there. Now, if you were to pick a prophecy of the cross, the whole the conference here is what? What's the title of the conference? And you were going to find a prophecy that had to do with health evangelism. What would it be? It would be, well, there's many, but which one do you think? Daniel 9. Look with me at Daniel 9. And I want to show you the practical elements of Daniel 9. Daniel 9 also is the, is, is the prophecy where we know that Christ came and was born and became the Messiah. How many of you remember that? So in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel starts out with this prayer. Oh, God, we're in a deep trouble. <laughs> we are in deep trouble. We're in a foreign country. We're captive. And we're being asked to walk and talk like Babylonians. <laughs> you know, we, they want us to eat what they eat. They want us to drink what they drink. They want to do all these things, right? And we're in trouble. 
Daniel 1 through 6 shows how he practically leads himself and others out of that. Daniel 7, 8, and 9 shows how he wants to lead the entire world out of that. Now look at chapter 9. I'll show you something here. <laughs> chapter 9, he starts out with prayer and fasting. He's reading the prophecies of Jeremiah. And then he makes this, uh, he makes this admittal. Says that we have, uh, well, let's look down there in verse 4. I pray to the Lord my God, make confession. I said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even from departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our father and all the people of this land. So he goes and he tells, you know, he's basically saying all the things that he, they've done wrong. They've not followed God's law, the moral law. They've not called his judgments and his statutes, but then look down in verse 11. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law, departed so far as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of, what does it say? Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we sinned against him. So, it's not only talking about the moral law, but it's all the books that Moses wrote. You know what's in all those books? All kinds of things about health in those books. We're going to talk about that a little bit next session. Right? All those things they rejected, and they are in deep trouble. So then there's a great, great prayer that he prays. Let me show it to you, and then we're going to get into the prophecy part, and we're going to show how it connects with medical evangelism or health evangelism. Say this with me. Say this with me if you can. To you, to us, to us, to you. Can you say that with me? To you, to us, to you. Say that to the person next to you. Okay, let's find that in the Bible, okay? You just, you said something from the Bible. Look at verse 7. Oh Lord! Righteousness belongs to you. There it is, to you. God is righteous. He does everything right. Totally righteous, totally holy. But then notice the middle. But to, what to say next? To us, shame of face, and then it goes on to describe us, describe that. Verse 8, to us, shame of face. But then notice the next, verse 9. But to you, or to the Lord our God, belongs what? Mercy and forgiveness, though we have what? Rebelled against him. So, to you, to us, to us, to you. You got it? Do you see that beautiful sandwich? In other words, you're right. We're wrong, we're wrong, but you're merciful. Can you say hallelujah? In other words... Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, collisions, or Colossians, some people call it. All of these epistles were predated by the book of Daniel, which was teaching what? Righteousness by faith. Notice verse 18. O oh God, incline your ear and hear and open your eyes and see our desolations in this city which is called by your name. We do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds but because of your great mercies. In other words, salvation by faith is taught by Daniel here. And he realizes, look, we made a mess of things. What does it say, verse 18? Your city is desolate. Your sanctuary is desolate. We, we have desolated everything about you. And by the way, the sanctuary was what? It was the center of health and healing. It was the center of health. It was like, it was like, remember when Jesus healed people, he said, go sell your health to the priest. Because that's the center of health and healing. And they had totally violated all the laws and principles, and now they were taken away from their, their sanctuary, and they were in Babylon. When the chief god of Babylon was a god named Sin. That was his name, Sin. So they went from salvation to sin. That's the situation. Now, Christ then steps in. God steps in and says, Daniel, you have confessed your sins, the sins of your people. You've recognized that you are guilty and you're in trouble. You're in trouble 
physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And when you talk about healing and health, you got to talk about those different things, right? There's physical problems, but usually the physical problems people have were undergirded by emotional problems. And those emotional problems might be undergirded by mental or thought problems, which are profoundly spiritual at, at the core. Are you with me on this? So Christ had to identify that, uh, had, had, had to uh, come and, and live that. And Daniel, he's, he, he's recognizing his need, and then God steps in. What does he do? Verse 20. Now I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for my holy mountain, for the holy mountain of my God, which is another way of saying the sanctuary. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in vision, being caused his wife fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. God loves to come for near at evening worship, morning and evening worship. And he informed me and talked to me and said, Oh, Daniel, I now have come to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the vision and understand the matter and understand the vision. And then comes that beautiful 70-week prophecy. How many of you remember the 70-week prophecy? Now, let's put this prophecy up here just to remind us. 70-week prophecy, where does it start? Does anyone remember? Where? That's right, right there. The command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And when did that happen? 457. The sanctuary was to be what? Restored. Sanctuary was to be restored. When Jesus began his ministry, what did he do? That's one of the first things he did. Do you remember? What did he do? He cleansed the temple. He began to restore the sanctuary. Are you with me? He wanted to restore that sanctuary because, why? He needed to have a health center. <laughs> because that healing center had been desolated. Remember that? It had been desolated. So you see Jesus... He, he's born, he identifies, and then what does he do? When he's a young man, where does he go? Where do his parents take him? They take him at what age to the temple? He is only 12 years old, it says in Luke 2, and you know, looking at like 42 to 52. He's 12 years old at that time. Why do they take him when he's 12 years old? Because it's the time now, you know, they would say it's the time for his bar mitzvah. What does that mean? The son of the bar, son of the what? Of the law. But not just the son of the law. This was meant to be a time, GYC attendees, <laughs> where the young person was supposed to live the law. And they were supposed to live it from the inside out because they learned it from their mom and dad. And this was a time where they were seen as coming out to live the law of God. So did he do that? Did Jesus do that? Did he go to the temple? Was it a profound experience? It was so profound. His mother was so good at teaching him, and he had responded so aptly to the Holy Spirit that his questions were so profound that they began talking to him, and he lost Track of time, if you will. Remember the story? And then his mother questioned him. What, what, where, where were you? And what did he say? Don't you know that I should be about GYC? I mean, be about what? My father's business. In other words, I'm transcending the family here. I am... I'm about my father's business. How many of you want to be about your father's business so much that when you, you, you're not getting in trouble for doing something wrong, you're getting in trouble for doing something right? How many of you want to get in trouble for doing something right for once? Well, where were you? Where were you, daughter? Oh, I got so into the book of uh, Proverbs that I just lost track of time. 
And I was considering the lady of Proverbs 31 and how I could be like that lady. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's why I did all the dishes and, and I cleaned the entire house and that's why I, I, I didn't come to the park on time. Let <laughs> me think your mom would just freak out if that happened. Freak out in righteousness, right? But this was like, this is what, this is what happened with Christ. He so identified with not only humanity, but also divinity, even at a young age. And then he said, look, we need to do something. What did he do? Remember the story? There was some, I think there were some money changers involved. How many remember the story? What did he do? Cleansed the temple. He cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. But for what purpose? Because the sanctuary was the center of health. It was the center of health. Like if you were going to put a story up here, what would you put? Luke 17. Remember the leper who was healed? He was healed. There were nine, or actually ten lepers healed, and only one of them made the connection. And what did he say? What did Jesus say to all of them? Go show yourself to the priest, right? And one came back and gave glory to God. But why did they say go to the priest? Because it was the place, it was documented whether or not you were cleansed. Right? The word there used in Luke 17 is catharzo. We get the word cathartic from that. It has a little more of a, a you know, blunt meaning these days. But the idea is to be cleansed. So the sanctuary is a place of healing. What was the next date on this prophecy, if we were going to put the dates there. We're looking here at the 2300-day prophecy that we often hear about only in evangelistic meetings, but I'm suggesting today it is the model for health ministry. And what we need to do is connect that back together. Okay. So what was the next thing that happened? 27 A.D., and what happened in 27 A.D.? No, that's from the restoring of the temple until Messiah the Prince. So what happened in 27 A.D.? He was identified, remember he identifies, but he was identified as the what? The Messiah. And what does Messiah mean? You know, there were many people called Mashiach or Messiah and many that were anointed, if you will. But Jesus was identified as the anointed one. The what? The anointed one. And, you know, there were kings that were anointed. There were priests that were anointed. There were prophets that were anointed. There were many different people that were anointed, right? Christ, however, came and was anointed. Who recognized that this was the Christ in Luke chapter 1? Simeon and Anna, where were they? They were in the temple and they realized, well, this is the Messiah. But it wasn't 27 years later before other people became aware of that. And he was the anointed one. Now, how is it that they really realized that Jesus... Besides Simeon and Anna, how did they really realize that Jesus was anointed? How did they really realize that? How did they really realize that? Acts chapter 10, verse 37 and 38. Look at it. Acts chapter 10, 37 and 38. Let's look at that together in our little health ministry Bible study this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Chapter 10, looking back at Christ's life, Luke, the physician, writing, wanting us to see all the nuances of medical missionary work, writing an excellent account to Theopolis so that he could have a sure idea. The words you know complain, proclaim throughout Judea and began in Galilee after the baptism of John, which John preached. Now verse 38, look at it closely. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with what? That's, 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 that's what the word Mashiach means, Messiah, right? The anointed one. He anointed him with the Holy Spirit 
and with what? So it's not enough to be anointed. There's got to be power. Now, how do they know he had power? Well, how do they know? Who, what does it say? Went about doing good. There it is. In other words, the way they knew he was the Messiah was because he went about doing what? He was doing good. What kind of good was he doing? What's it say in the text? He went about doing good and healing. Oh, there it is. So the reason that people knew that he was the Christ was not only had he re-inaugurated the health center, he began healing. He went about healing. What if we preach the prophecies and connected with it, healing. How many think that might increase attendance? Amen. What if someone came to a prophecy seminar and you said, look, what we're going to do is restore the sanctuary of your body and you're going to experience physical healing as a result of your interaction with us. How many think people might be coming? The first three and a half years of Christ's ministry, what happened? He went about doing good. What kind of people did he heal? Give me some stories. Blind people. If I healed someone who was blind on the opening night of GYC, do you think attendance would go up? What kind of other healing? What? Demon possession. How many think there's a need for that today? Amen. What kind of other healing? He healed the outcasts, the people no one would reach out to. He reached out to the rich, Nicodemus, in the middle of the night. He reached out to the poor, woman at the well in the middle of the day. Wow. Three and a half years of physical healing. That physical healing, remember we said that if you're going to do medical missionary work, you've got to restore the sanctuary. You've got to get confidence. Wait a minute, this is the sanctuary. This is a person that can, has the promise of health. But then came physical healing. Now, you didn't mention some of the most dramatic ones. It just crescendoed in Christ's ministry all the way up to the crowning medical missionary act. Ellen White calls it the crowning act. What was it? The raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus comes out of, out. It's three days. They say, he stinketh. He says, that's all right. Loose him. Let him go. You would think everybody would be very delighted in this healing ministry. How many think this would just be delightful? But they weren't. You know what they said? Kill him. Kill Jesus. Let me say something to you. If you really do start to get involved in healing ministry and have success, don't think it's going to be easy. A lot of people have a lot of money to make in healing ministry. I call it Gehazi ministry. <laughs> Balaam ministry. Balaam ministries, Gehazi ministries.com. It's, it's where we decide that the sickness pays our bills. And so we don't witness in our workplace. Oh, that's great, but don't bring it here. Don't pray with patience. Don't talk to people about the realities because what if we lose our ability to get paid by the government and we can't pay for the Mercedes? <laughs> that would be the time of trouble. I, no, I don't think so. I think we're confused. How do you think we're confused? You see, the cross needs to come back into our ministry. And see, before Jesus died on the cross, he lived the cross. He lived to minister. He went about going to GYC. He didn't do that. Now, he would have showed up. But you know what he did when he showed up? The things Isaiah said. I'll do those things. Are you with me with this? 
How many can see how this Daniel 9 prophecy has some promise as a paradigm to change your life? So what happens next? Three and a half years of ministry. He focuses on physical healings. It says in the book, Ministry of Healing, page 17, that there was not a building in Palestine large enough to handle him. Oh, we're going to go to GYC and the convention center because we've got so many, 4,500. That would have looked like nothing to Jesus. It's an indictment on us when we say, we have to build a big church. Really? <laughs> you couldn't have built a church big enough for Jesus. How many think we need a revival and a reformation? So then what happens? Three and a half years of this crescendo of personal ministry, and he's mentoring some GYC attendees, right? He has 12 of the most unpromising, and one, oh, 11 of the most unpromising, and, and, and one who is the most promising, right? Who ends up being the biggest jerk. And he takes them with him, and they just go out doing good. And he's just watching. Well, why'd you do that? Well, I think we should blow these people up, they say one day. No, 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 don't blow them up. God loves Samaritans. Are you with me? So he's teaching them. Then when he dies on the cross, this is the center of our message at this conference. He dies on a cross in what year? says in the middle of the week he would be cut off, it says in Daniel's prophet, but not for himself. He's cut off. And he dies there, and he dies on the cross. Think about it for a minute. We're talking about the cross here. Just before he gets to the cross, he goes to the Garden of, Garden of, and in that Garden of Gethsemane, he is approached by a huge mob of priests. Mob of priests, that sounds bad. Let's be respectful. So, and that mob of priests comes, and what do they do? They we're going to kill him. Who was it that instigated that? Who did? Now, Judas, Judas, Judas from John chapter 5 and 6 on. You know, he said, look, this guy's great. He's healing people. I love this healing ministry. Look at this. Not only that, he feeds them. He's feeding the 5,000. He's feeding this. He's feeding that. This guy could be in charge of his army. They die. He resurrects them from the dead. He feeds them. We're going to take over the world. But he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. So what we're going to do is initiate this plan where he has to use those gifts. We'll come and get him, and then he'll just take his swords, and he'll just beat everybody. Everybody up. That was Judas' idea. And the disciples believed it. They believed it. So Peter brought two swords. Remember that? So, okay, when this goes down. <laughs> so he comes, and the high priest, servants is there. He takes his sword and does an earnectomy. Whatever that's called. It's a new word, a new word. Look for that next couple of years at Loma Linda. Cuts off his, cuts off his ear. Luke records. Jesus, before the greatest miracle of all, which was what we're going to talk about in a minute, just before that, he does a miracle. What's he do? He heals the man's ear. He says, that's not what we're about. Let's put his ear back on so he can hear the gospel. He that has an ear, let him hear. He only needs one. Let's put it back on. I mean, Peter's just like, whew, man, look at that slice. He goes, no, Peter, put it back on. Peter's like, okay, I'm not slicing anything else off. It's going to end up back on. <laughs> he does this miracle in Gethsemane. Think about that. Just before he's about to die, he's doing a medical missionary miracle. And then he dies on the cross. But when he's on the cross, he's hanging on that cross, and he's hanging between what? Two thieves. Two thieves. Righteousness or justice and mercy were going to kiss each other on that cross, right? One, ex one didn't accept Christ's mercy, and he died. The other said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, why did he say, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Why did he say that? You know what De Desire of Ages tells us? And if we had our PowerPoint, which who knows where that is? 
You know what Desire of Ages says? He remembered all the health ministry Jesus did. He remembered his healings. And when he remembered those healings, he had confidence. He said, I remember this three and a half years. I remember how you healed all these people, the blind, the halt, all those people. And I know that you have the power. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I know you don't have to die. I know you have resurrection power. So remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the paradigm that Peter uses in the very text for this conference. What's this conference built on? What text is this conference built on? What is in the program? Have you memorized the text yet? What is the program? What's in the program? Help me out, someone, or you're going to have to turn your badges in. I need them for meals anyway. <laughs> what is the text? What's the text? Okay, hand your badges in. Come forward. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, 23, 24. He committed no sin, nor deceit was, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, verse 23, did not revile in return. He suffered. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Then comes our text for our conference. Who bore... Our, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Where is that from? Isaiah 53. So in other words, the point is, there was some kind of healing that came on the cross. There was some kind of healing that came on the cross. What was that healing? You ever heard it said that, you know, Jesus said to people, look, I, I caused him to pick up his bed and walk, but which is easier to do, to heal a man this way or to forgive his sins? The point was, look, physical healing is, is not as profound as what kind of healing? Spiritual healing. So there was spiritual healing on the cross. And Isaiah chapter 53 teaches us profound lessons, which I would love to go through with you, but the, uh, my ability to write on the whiteboard precludes that. But it says, he was a man that was touched with our griefs and our sorrows. Literally, this is the idea of emotions. Now, Isaiah 53 paints a picture that I've turned into a paradigm for ministry. And that picture is, Jesus comes, he's, he's abandoned, he's abandoned, he's alone. He's pictured as a nobody. He is accused, falsely accused. He is abused by authority leaders physically and emotionally and verbally. Have you ever met someone physically, emotionally abused by authority figures? He's abandoned. He's beaten, he's falsely accused. He's tempted to numb the pain through substance abuse. Someone comes to the cross and says, drink this because you feel so bad. Have you ever met someone that says, yeah, I'll drink it. I feel bad. You see, what happens on the cross is I've made it into a list. I don't do it the same words, but pretty similar. And I, I'll talk to people who come to the depression recovery program. And if they have anything like, you know, I was abused or this or that, I instantly take them to Isaiah 53. I show them Isaiah 53, but I don't show them that it's Isaiah 53. I just have this survey. Has you ever, the authority figure ever, you know, abused you? Have you ever been neglected? Blah, blah, blah. Sounds all really clinical. Da, 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 da. Circle this if you have. And we're going to pray about that, talk about because I'm the spiritual counselor, right? They come back to the next meeting. You know what I show them? I show them Isaiah 53, and I say, guess what? No one understands like Jesus. He's a friend beyond compare. Meet him at the throne of mercy. He's waiting for you there. No one understands like Jesus. He knows your pain. He knows not just your physical issues. He knows the emotional pain beneath.
Can you see how now this idea of the cross, if you're identifying, helping people identify with what Christ did for us, the word for is used again. He was a ransom for, who for? For us. He entered into our emotional suffering and pain and was victorious on our behalf. And if he did that, can he bring forgiveness? Can he bring help? Can he bring hope? Can he bring healing? We could do a whole seminar on that. Just taking phrase by phrase. This is the foundation of psychology. If you want to take psych nursing, this is it. Are you with me? Well, we got to hasten on. What time is it? What time is it? Man, I don't have my PowerPoint. I don't have my iPhone. I'm like dead in the water. What time is it? 1043? I got to keep going. <laughs> so we had emotional. We have emotional healing. We have physical healing. We have emotional healing and spiritual healing at the cross. Can you see why there is healing at the cross? Well, that's not all. We reduce the gospel when we speak only of the cross. Because the cross empowers us to go forward. Amen? So let's see what happens. Christ dies. He dies on the cross. And what happens for the next three and a half years? Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Look at it with me. Hebrews chapter 2. Oh, man. Bible's upside down. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. You're getting some good video there. I'm giving you a couple close-ups here. Hebrews chapter 2. Listen, listen to this. Mm. By the way, Daniel 9 says that he died in the middle of the week. He was cut off, but not for himself. But then it says that he would confirm a covenant with many, but in the middle of the week he'd be cut off. How can you confirm... A covenant if you're dead. How can you confirm a covenant for seven days if you're cut off at day three and a half? How can you confirm a covenant with many even though you die? Here's the beauty. Look what happens. The cross, he puts down his, he dies on the cross. He's resurrected, but guess who he leaves? The head has a body. Who's the head? And he has a what? And who's the body? And what happens with that initial body? Look what it says. Verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was, what's it say next? Confirmed to us by those who what? So what happened? He died. He's cut off. But guess what? He goes to heaven, but they're saying, well, that's it. He's dead. No, 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 that's not what happened. All of these different people start acting like him, and they become so much like him because he's in them that they're called what? Christians. Oh, look at the Christians. They're like Christ. Christians. And they begin to confirm the covenant for the next three and a half years. What do they do during those three and a half years? What happens in Acts chapter 1? Tell me, someone. Acts chapter 1. There's the resurrection of Christ. Acts chapter 2. What happens in Acts chapter 2? All of the, the family of Jesus comes together. They'd all been separated. And there's family healing. Acts chapter 3 or Acts chapter uh, 2, they come together. And, oh, Acts chapter 1 and 2. And then Acts chapter 2, what happens? There's Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit begins to fall. Acts chapter 3, what happens in Acts chapter 3? There's a healing at the gate, beautiful. There's that person that's been wanting to get into the what? He's been wanting to get into the what? The sanctuary. He never could get into the sanctuary. And he says, wait, I'll heal you. He's healed, and he can go into the sanctuary. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 4, what happens? They're still talking. Acts chapter 4, they're still talking about what happened in Acts chapter 3. They're all talking about it, and the people are in jail, and they're talking about it, and they're praying. Acts chapter 5, what happens in Acts chapter 5? They all meet at Solomon's porch. At whose porch? And guess what? They're all healed. So what's happening? There's physical 
and there's emotional and there's spiritual healing that's being telegraphed by now, not Christ, but by who? The body of Christ. In other words, the church, the church, the body of Christ is reaching out, reaching out, reaching out. And what are they saying? Are they saying it's them that are doing it? They're saying, no, 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 wait a minute. You don't understand it. You killed the prince of life. <laughs> prince, Messiah, the prince of life, not death. You killed the healer, but we are being used by him to bring healing still. They were turning the world upside down. The priests were not healing people. They were, and the people were going to the priest and saying, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healing. And pretty soon people say, wait a minute, why are we going to the priest to begin with at all? And the priests themselves, it says in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, verse 7, you know what it says? A great number of the priests believed. Whoa, look at it, physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing. This is the right one. This is the right guy. This is, this is the Messiah we believe. So guess what happened? Those in charge of the HMOs got together. Those in charge of the third-party payment. Those in charge of, wait a minute, we've got to keep this all. The healing just has to come through certain purveyors of health. Those that have the PhD, MD, RN, LPN. Look, I, I agree in all those things. We have a new nursing program starting at Weimar, but it's a different kind. It's hopefully tacked into something more powerful. How many of you want to have something more powerful? It equips everybody. And they all came and they all believed. They said, we got to put it into it. We have to put it into it. Because you know what the, the linchpin was? Acts chapter, Acts chapter 6 and 7? Stephen. Stephen saw that there was a, a problem among the, he, the, the Greeks and the Hebrews. And he wanted to help bring parity in a social feeding program. It, it, it appears that one group thought they were not being fed and the other group thought they were and they thought there was some disparity. And so he says, wait a minute, let me take this over. And the deacons, which the name means servant, they all got together and said, let's make sure that no one's passed over in the daily distribution. Wait a minute. They were now meeting not just a physical need, not just an emotional need, not just a spiritual need. They were also bringing healing, healing to a Social need. They were doing Christian help work. How many of you are with me? Guess what? They say, you got to kill these people. You got to kill Stephen. This is getting out of hand. They're healing everybody. They're meeting physical needs. They're meeting emotional needs. They're meeting spiritual needs. They're meeting social needs. They're reaching this town. They're reaching the other town. They're reaching little cities. They're reaching big cities. They reach this opolis. They reach the decopolis. They're going to reach all opolis. They're going to take a monopoly. Kill it! So they did. That's the end of the 490. They killed him. Did it work? No. Colossians, or like I like to say, collisions, tells the story that in one generation, one generation, one generation of youth for Christ took the mantle and the gospel went everywhere in one generation. Now, I hope you get this sense. How many of you are getting the sense that this prophecy is not just a PowerPoint slide for the Amazing Facts Evangelist? Not just for it is written. The new ministry, it is lived. The new ministry, it is, I want to be a part of the Amazing Fact. Not because I'm great, but because he's great. Not because my cross, but because of his cross. I will take up my cross and follow him. I'll find a way to create a sanctuary space for people. They'll feel comfortable. They'll give me a consent to take care of their physical needs, whatever they are. It might be something simple. You know, the best thing I like to do in all the different things I did in clinical work in the hospital, best thing, 
you might say, oh man, it was probably helping put him in a subclavian. Oh man, it must be like all those monitors and pumps. Oh man, and I, I kind of like that, hitting the buttons, bing, bing, bing. Oh, it must be looking at this and that. You know, none of that stuff was really my greatest thing. You know what the greatest thing was? Giving someone a warm blanket. <laughs> they come in, they were in an accident. They were scraped off the road. They're on a terrible metal gurney. And they come in, and they come to the emergency room, and they're like, I'm cold. And I went to the warmer. And I said, let me get you some blankets. And they went, oh, that feels so good. That was my favorite thing. <laughs> it doesn't have to be something grandiose to meet a physical need. How many are thankful for those that can do grandiose things? I am. But how many think... Even the simple things. There's room for everyone. Jesus turned the world upside down. And the reason he did it was because he had a plan. Do you see where he got the plan? It was from Daniel 9. And he lived that plan. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. That's not the end of the prophecy. That's what we're going to talk about the next half. That prophecy ends all the way down here. Where does it end? The 2300-day prophecy, where does it end? 1844. And there's a group of people that, who's this group of people that emerges? The Advent movement. And guess what they're called to do? They're called to do all of this all over again so that the early rain is not the only thing. There's a ladder. How many of you want to learn about the connection between this and the latter rain? That's what we're going to learn in part two in just a moment. Right, I do this next one? Okay. So, by the way, we learn most of these things in a little program called the health program, but we don't have time to go through everything that's learned there. If you want more information about this, there's some flyers at the back. And there's some flyers from other health ministries as well at the back. I told them to put them there. The more, the merrier. What time is it? Let me see here. 10.55. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for identifying with us, tabernacling, becoming a sanctuary among us. Thank you for your physical healing, for your emotional healing, and for how others followed you in all those ways and brought social healing. You turned the world upside down, turn our world upside down, Use us to turn the world upside down. Not for our glory, but for yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.